Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. And I just wanted to tell you something. Um, You see, when I was um running here, I wanted to make sure um, it's it's like a podcast, but with two. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is it is it is like a podcast, but with. <laughs> I never know what you're going to say for week. Uh, now it's become a thing where I never know yeah, what you're going to say for week to uh, week. Neither, neither do I, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> Today is the third episode of our series. Get me another when Harry met Sally, and this week we'll be discussing two of the most beloved and popular romantic comedies of the 90s and perhaps all time. The first of those comes from When Harry Met Sally writer Nora Ephron. This is Sleepless in Seattle. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Sleepless in Seattle. You called a radio station? Christmas Eve. He phones in one of those radio call-in shows. He tells them that his dad needs a new wife. And the shrinkette practically forces a guy onto the phone and says, Tell me, what was so special about your wife? Well, Dr. Marshall Fieldstone, I think. It was like... Sleepless in Seattle? That's what you call them on the show because he can't sleep. And now 2,000 women want his number. Here's Sleepless in Seattle. You're the most attractive man I ever laid ears on. The guy could be a crackhead. Actually, he sounded nice. You know it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to get married over the age of 40. That's not true. That statistic is not true. That's right. It's not true. But it feels true. Sandy has a girlfriend, Glenda. She's a weightlifter. It's not like her neck is bigger than her head. No, 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 no. I'm not asking you to set me up. What about Walter? Walter and I are engaged. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man, 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 on the face of the earth. Lou Gehrig life. Lou Gehrig life. When's the last time you were out there? Uh, Jimmy Carter, 1978. Things are a little different now. I am having all of these fantasies about some man I have never even met who lives in Seattle. It rains nine months of the year in Seattle. I know! Tiramisu. What is tiramisu? You'll see. Some woman is going to want me to do it to her, and I'm not going to know what it is. You'll love it. What if I never meet him? What if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? Your destiny can be your doom. I want to meet you. Dad, read this, read this. Where is Seattle? Right. Where's Baltimore? Ah, it's right there. Look, one, two, three, four, but there's like 26 states. But what I really don't want to do is end up always wondering what might have happened and knowing I could have done something. This is crazy. That's what I'm trying to tell you. What women are looking for. Packs in a cute pun. This is the one I like. There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You can't can't even turn on the news nowadays without hearing about how some babe thought some guy's butt was cute. So has my butt. Not bad. Really? Yeah. Is it cute, though? Grading on a curve. Sleepless in Seattle started as a play written by writer Jeff Arch. Uh, the story being about two characters who fall in love over a telephone without meeting in person. 
Uh, like Pretty Woman, the initial screenplay was not a comedy, but more of a serious romantic drama, although it did end with the characters meeting at the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. After being rejected by several studios who were concerned about a romantic movie where the two lead characters didn't meet until the very end, it was finally picked up by TriStar Pictures and producer Gary Foster. TriStar brought on Last Starfighter director Nick Castle after he was bumped off of the Peter Pan adaptation Hook by none other than Steven Spielberg. After Castle signed to direct, David S. Ward, who previously wrote The Sting and Major League, came on to do a rewrite of the script with the aim of making it more comedic as well as edgier and quirkier. Nevertheless, Gary Foster felt the script wasn't quite what it should be and took it to When Harry Met Sally writer Nora Ephron. Following the success of that film, Nora Ephron made her move into the director's chair in 1992 with a film called This Is My Life, about a single mom trying to raise two daughters while trying to forge a career in stand-up comedy. Unfortunately, that film wasn't a success at the box office, and she subsequently found herself looking for script doctor work afterwards. Ephron rewrote the script for Sleepless in Seattle in a space of three weeks, keeping the Empire State Building ending some of the aspects of Ward's version, but making it funnier and less sentimental. Apparently, everyone liked Nora Ephron's script except Nick Castle, who subsequently left the project. Impressed by Ephron's revisions, Foster hired her to direct the film. The film stars Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Bill Pullman, Ross Malinger, Rosie O'Donnell, Rita Wilson, Victor Garber, Gabby Hoffman, and Rob Reiner. Efron wrote the film with Meg Ryan in mind for Annie, although numerous actresses pursued it, including Julia Roberts, Kim Basinger, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sharon Stone, Jodie Foster, Demi Moore, and Madonna. Meg Ryan hoped to star in the film opposite her then-husband, Dennis Quaid, but Efron felt he wasn't funny enough for the role and instead cast Tom Hanks, who had previously starred opposite Ryan in one of my favorite films, Joe vs. the Volcano. <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle came at an interesting time in the career of Tom Hanks. After a decade of successful, mostly comic roles, Hanks had his first major commercial and critical disappointment with the film adaptation of Tom Wolfe's seminal 1980s. 80s novel, The Bonfire of the Vanities. The Bonfire of the Vanities, Rob, by the way, is the anti-Godfather. <laughs> yes. it's, it was a massively successful novel and began a huge film adaptation, but whereas The Godfather reached its maximum potential, The Bonfire of the Vanities film fails in every way conceivable. <laughs> I have never seen it. Oh, it's so weird. I've it's never so, seen it. Oh, my yeah. God. It's 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 so... But it was like Tom Hanks had basically been on a roll through the 80s, and then yeah. that movie just kind of blew everything up. He didn't have a movie for like two years. He had had a hit the previous year with A League of Their Own, directed by Penny Marshall. Great movie. Great movie. Oh, it is a great movie. But, but in that film, he's part of an ensemble. Yep. You know, he's a key part of the ensemble, obviously, but it's not... He's not a leading man in sort of the, the traditional sense. So Sleepless in Seattle was really his first leading man role since the debacle of Bonfire of the Vanities. And it kicked off. It was, first of all, it was one of two films he had in 1993. The other was... 
Philadelphia, for which he would win his first Oscar. Yeah. These these movies kick off his like run in the 90s where he basically could do no wrong. Yeah. And then uh, 1994, clearly no movie starring Tom Hanks came out uh, of note. <laughs> yeah. Everybody. Forrest does. Gump, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Apollo 13 after that. And Toy Story and that thing you do. Same, like the 90s, just like he couldn't make a bad choice in the 90s. And you know, Sleepless in Seattle and 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 obviously Philadelphia were sort of like the beginning of that that road. Um, yeah, I, I like to imagine I like to imagine him, you know, leaving his his home at midnight to go to the crossroads <laughs> and <laughs> meet Robert Johnson is there. That is <laughs> like, that yes. would explain it because it is it is you can't exactly. do any wrong in the nineties for Tom Hanks. Let's get into Sleepless in Seattle because I think it's a very odd movie. It's a very unusual romantic comedy it's a romantic comedy not about the romance essentially correct film opens with architect sam baldwin and his eight-year-old son jonah mourning the loss of maggie sam's wife and jonah's mother to cancer sam decides they are in need of a change and the two move from chicago to seattle a year and a half later on christmas eve jonah calls a radio psychiatrist dr marcia fieldstone and tells her that his dad needs a new wife Sam is persuaded to go on the air and he talks about how much he loved Maggie and how much he misses her. Now, this opening sequence is incredible. If there was one question I was allowed to ask. Oh, go ahead. People who truly loved once are far more likely to love again. Sam, do you think that there's someone out there you could love as much as your wife? Well, Dr. Marshall Fieldstone, I think that's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Well, I'm, I'm going to get out of bed every morning. Breathe in and out all, all day long. And then after a while, I won't have to remind myself to get out of bed in, in the morning and breathe in and out. And, and then after a while, I, I won't have to think about how I had it great and perfect for a while. Sam, tell me what was so special about your wife. Well, how long is your program? Oh, well, it was a, oh, it was a million tiny little things. That when you added them all up, it, it just meant that we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. I knew it the very first time I touched her. It was like coming home, only to know home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car. And I knew it. It was like magic. magic. Tom Hanks is amazing in this scene. And and all of it, you just, I, honestly, I feel the pain and the loss of that character. It's, to me, it's on the, the first 10, it's on the same level as the first 10 minutes of Up. Mm-hmm. Like, that is how affecting it is. Yeah, and it's um, interesting that both of our romantic comedies today, our death is going to play a major role. Yes. Much more in this first one, in Sleepless in Seattle, but. No, no less of a, a role, really, in the, the next film. By starting at the funeral with the voiceover, it really sets the tone of this movie, I think, completely different than the four that we've covered so far. Yeah. When Harry Met Sally or Pretty Woman or Cutting Edge or Singles. And I'm going to say something that I, I want to be careful about because I don't want to say what I'm not saying. Sure. Which is that 
so far, those four movies in the romantic comedy genre that we've covered so far, and I would I would dare to say the romantic comedy genre in general is fun. It generally is a a fun often lighthearted, even though you're dealing with real emotions, I would say lighthearted in the same sense that well, like when I go to see John Wick, right? I'm not. <laughs> I love know, that comparison. There, there yes, may be, I totally get I, it. I mean, to, to me, yes. yeah, this movie is not that at all. This movie is, this is the emoist of romantic <laughs> comedies that you could possibly do. This is the My Chemical Romance. It's the Death Cab for Cutie of romantic comedies. Oh my god! And it, it works, but it is it is markedly different from any of the any of the others in this trend yeah. so far. No, I think that's I, I think you're right on. And and uh, I also want to mention that Dr. Marsha Fieldstone, that in the show Ted Lasso, the sports psychologist in that show is Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, oh. uh, which I think is clearly a nod to. Uh, to Sleepless in Seattle. You know, we talked about the other Seattle movie singles being very much of its time and having Sleepless in Seattle is exactly the Absolutely. same way as far as being of its time, but just it's a different slice. Yeah. I cannot stress enough to younger folks or folks outside the US how in the 90s, call in psychiatrist shows were so prevalent. <laughs> you had different types. Yeah. You had types like this that were more of an adult nature. You had what Love Line here. In oh, LA, I remember that. Yeah. Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla. That was more of the comedy, like call us uh, with your real problems and pain, and now we're going to make fun of it, kind of, but then also try and treat. Yeah. This was like a whole subgenre of radio that I'm sure that some exist somewhere, or there's a podcast or whatever, but it's just not in the zeitgeist at all. I guess some of it moved to TV, and but even now it feels like that's kind of gone away. But this is so wicked 90s yeah. that it, it, it hurts. I know, it hurts. I know, <laughs> I know. I feel that pain. On the other side of the country, in Baltimore, is Annie Reed, a reporter who finds herself listening to Sam on the radio as she drives on Christmas Eve. Now, Annie is engaged to Walter, played by Bill Pullman who just seems like a perfectly nice and good guy. We see Annie and Walter visit her family on Christmas Eve. And, and honestly, yeah, he's got a couple of allergies, but there's nothing wrong with this dude. Like he even quotes the film, The Pride of the Yankees on Christmas Eve, although the restaurant seems to be lost on most of Annie's family. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you compare Walter in this movie to Sally in when Harry met Sally. Yeah. Because in many ways, they have their same particularness, right? Yeah. But context is everything. Because in that movie, Harry does have a connection. And so those particulars become the idiosyncrasies that endear you to someone. Exactly. Right? And that, that mean that you know them very well. But here, when she's just settling, when Annie's kind of settling for Walter, right? Here it's presented as... Oh, yeah, he's a schlub that you wouldn't want to be around. Yeah, and, and I don't see it. I, he's a perfectly nice guy. He, you know, he's, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with Walter. It, honestly, to an almost, uh, we'll get, and we'll get to it later, an almost unbelievable degree as the film goes on. Like, he's, he is so, you know, like, like, oh my God, he's, Walter's great. I hope, I hope in, in the, in the world of the movie, Walter finds love. Eventually, because Walter's doing nothing wrong. Yeah, and he he reminds me of a of a similar character, I think, who's presented in a much different light in the next. Yes, movie. but we'll get to that. That's a little. That's a little. I'm teeing you up, everybody. You know who I'm talking about. Yes, I also want to mention. Uh, I wanted to point out the movie quote because specifically because it's the first hint of what is a pretty significant theme in this film, and that is the effect that movies have on us. 
They're part of our cultural landscape and they affect how we view the world. I mean, you know, here we are doing a podcast about movies. Rob, I don't need to tell you, I quote movies randomly all the time. So does my wife. Well, and to that point, there you might be getting to this quote, but I'm going to steal it from you. Good, do it. It's uh, the Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, when she uh, when she talks to Annie. Yes, and she says, uh, "That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie." Absolutely. And those. What's interesting is I think that question when you set it up in many movies or in many stories, the expectation is that. The, the the character has to learn a lesson and learn that real love is messier or whatever, right? There's It's got to get more real. Not in Sleepless in Seattle, which I think is one of the appeals in many ways uh, in the pairing of these two movies. Uh, they have more in common than uh, Stand By Your Man being in them. Right. I also think <laughs> that, they, that they are uh, – one thing they have in common is these feel – in many different ways, very fairy tale, which in some ways I think is drawing from the pretty woman angle of things as opposed to the when Harry met Sally side of things that this is kind of a head in the clouds movie. And not, and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just no, no, no. the viewpoint of this is a, a T with a capital. <laughs> it's, it's true with a capital T. <laughs> T with a capital Love. true. <laughs> It's T with a capital true, Chris. I love it. Uh, I do want to mention music in this movie because in a lot of ways, this movie feels like it is it is a successor to When Harry Met Sally. It's a different kind of movie. It's it's about – essentially, this movie ends where something like When Harry Met Sally or most romantic comedies would begin, which, which is the, the character's meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, stylistically, it's following on – from what Efron and Reiner did in uh, When Harry Met Sally. And you see that with the music because they have, you know, they have the, you know, they use standards, the, 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 uh, the reorchestration of standards, a new version of them. Like that's, and it's used, classic songs are used to great effect. I mean, to be perfectly honest, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow gets me every time because it's one of two songs my father used to sing to me when I was little. What was the other one? Bad, bad Leroy Brown. You got to have balance in life. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, again, she's she's listening to the, the in the car uh, to to Tom Hanks on the phone, and 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 the stuff that he like that scene with him and on the phone. You know, tell me tell me what was so special about your wife, and he talks about a million little tiny things, and it is it's so good. It is so like that is Tom Hanks. You know, like kind of at the peak of his ability. It's, it's it's just incredible. And I found everything with Tom Hanks and his son to be completely like moving and, 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 and heartfelt in this movie. Like I absolutely was invested in their relationship more than the relationship of these two people who don't meet. Yeah. And, and one thing I think that, um, and look, they, you know, they were at the beginning of his whole run here, but that getting Tom Hanks's performance in this movie gives you, Sam vacillates between those moments of just tender open-heartedness when talking about his wife mm-hmm. and then a lot of anger. Yeah. Right? There, he, he, there is a lot of anger on display here from this character. He does it in such a way, though, that I think that anger makes you feel for the character. Yeah. There is no mystery as to why he is angry. It is there at the very beginning of the movie. And it's 
it's all within reason. It's not like he's um, ruining people's lives or being dastardly. No, no, no. But, you know, I mean, when his friend is trying to help him out in uh, Chicago, giving him that little card yeah. about like, oh, you could call my therapist if you want to talk to someone. And then he just very angrily is like dishing out all of the the similar types of gestures other people have made. And he's just pissed because it's all in it's all inadequate for what he's feeling right now and frankly he's not ready to heal he he needs he needs this period no and that's why you have that 18 month time yep. jump in the yep. movie from the from the, the the passing of 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 Maggie to when like the movie kind of starts in earnest uh because you have a little bit of time he's still he's still shattered and, and understandably so the the thing about it is none of the things that Sam feels in this movie are unreasonable or un, un unwarranted yeah. it's all very warranted uh but on account of the radio interview thousands of women from across the country write letters to Sam and they pour in and Annie is one of the women moved by Sam's story and she too is compelled to write him. Although I will point out she doesn't actually mail the letter herself, but her friend Becky, played by Rosie O'Donnell, takes that upon herself to do it. What I think is interesting about this movie is that for a good chunk of it, it is a movie about a parasocial relationship. Parasocial relationships are when people feel they experience a kind of connection with other people through mass media. But these are inherently one-way relationships. They're not two-way interactions. You may think you know someone that you see on TV or in on the internet, or in this case, on radio, or you may think you know the podcast hosts that you're listening to. But you know, we have we we have lives that you might that are not necessarily privy to. I mean, they're not terribly interesting, but you know, hey, yeah, I, we're, we're not H H Holmes or anything. Uh, we don't we don't have the podcast <laughs> murder house. It's, we're very normal people. But but you know, Annie doesn't really know Sam except through her experience hearing him on the radio. And at least she, she knows him as well as the woman from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's mentioned by Jonah, who also sent a letter. And, you know, like, in a sense, there could be thousands of Annies having their own parasocial relationship movies <laughs> happening simultaneously throughout America. It's just that... uh Annie is the one who takes it to the next level, which we'll get into in a minute, because there's there's stuff in this movie that, I'll be honest, is problematic as hell. Well, yes. But it, it's uh, before we get into that craziness, <laughs> the, the movie, because of what you're talking about, Chris, you know, Nora Ephron does a few things in this, both story and, and directing wise, where I think they're taking great pains to show that the connection Annie has is different from all of those other... Uh, women who are perhaps projecting onto Sam a little bit more. It's the little things like early on when she's listening to the radio or early-ish and she's in her kitchen, Annie- Is this the apple? It's the apple. It's the apple. And she's like yeah. feeling the apple. And it is so in your face and so not a part of that scene that you it sticks in your mind. And sure enough- I, I, I didn't notice it. My wife had to point it out. <laughs> okay, there you go. Maybe it wasn't in your face enough. So she's peeling that apple. And I want to say it's like 15, 20 minutes later. It, they don't do it right away. Yeah. When uh, Sam is talking to Jonah, his son, or or or, or is it someone else? I think they're replaying, replaying a yeah, bit yeah. Of, the, of the radio broadcast that we didn't hear earlier. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. 
oh, that's right. He is talking to the doctor on the radio. And he's talking about one of the things he loved about his wife. And one of them was the way she could peel a whole apple in just one big swirl. And of course, this is exactly the way that Annie did it. Yes. And they're trying to do these little things to show how perfect they are for each other. Although they're limited because the whole you know, high concept of this thing is that it's Michael Mann's heat version of a romantic comedy. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. Oh, oh as someone go. who loves analogies, that's oh, really good. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and so, you know, I don't think anyone is saying that if someone peels the apple the way that your dead wife did, that you're, you know, made for each other. But it really, it, they're trying to drop these little symbolic things that are supposed to be evocative of the fact that they are made for each other because, you know, it's, they have to get that across right. without them having really much to any communication until the third act. Well, and it's interesting how, it's interesting how this movie's edited because you have a sequence where Sam and Annie on separate coasts are both looking out at the water and pondering life as people do. And what's at this point, they have no real connection. It's But because the film is edited in yeah. such a way where you're cutting back and forth to these two people, you feel like there's a connection. But honestly, there could be that woman from Tulsa staring out. I mean, it's not a body of water because it's Oklahoma, but staring out over some open field at the same time. And she has just as much a connection to Sam as Annie does. Yeah, I mean, it really – and that is that whole kind of romantic thing visually of – you know, the, the cliche of, oh, if I'm going away, it's like, oh, look, look to this star at 11 o'clock and I'll be yeah. looking at the same one and we'll feel the connection because we're on the same earth. It's very much of that. But that's usually pre-planned. It is. But that that's that is one of the visual directorial choices <laughs> yes. to try to help establish yes. this for the audience. And, and again, we all live under the same sky. It doesn't mean that we're all soulmates with everyone or does it? We're all connected in some ways. We're but, all, uh, you know, we're all uh, stardust, uh, I guess. But uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, and it has to do those things in order to try and establish this connection. And I think, you know, for the most part, it works. Uh, you know, a lot of it, because it is evocative and symbolic, you can't think about it or it all falls apart. No. You know, again, <laughs> like what does an apple peeling tell you about a person's personality and, and are they a good person and, and a right fit for you? Uh, nothing in real life. But this is as uh, this movie loves, a movie. Yes. Yes. Uh, Annie starts to look into Sam. And and it's interesting that- And you boy, know, does she. This movie came out in- <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, we'll, we'll get- But like, what I find interesting is this movie came out in 1993. So it's- it, Like, the internet obviously existed, but it wasn't in widespread use. And Annie, as a journalist, has resources that allow her to find information on Sam that in a few short years, she would be able to use Google and that sort of thing to be able to do the thing that she's doing, which, be honest, is cyberstalking. Let's just call it what it is. There's no two ways about it. It's one of two aspects of the film that the film presents as unusual, but that in the near future would become commonplace. The other is making travel reservations by computer. Like Jonah's friend Jessica, her parents are travel agents, which is how she's able to book him a plane ticket to New York. In both cases, you have to give characters specific professions to be able to do things that they would need to do for the plot, but that in a few short years, anybody with a computer could do. And I found that just sort of interesting time frame wise in terms of uh, – yeah, the way it works. Yeah, well, and 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 actually, what I would say is that uh, another way to look at this, with uh, especially with Annie's uh, 
use of journalistic resources to stalk a man, not for a story, but for personal things. It's a problem. This, we have a mirror in the next film where you have a somewhat uh, problematic romantic comedy trope, right? Yeah. That is usually gender swapped. Yes. But it's presented in the opposite uh, in both for, for very you know, understandable story reasons, right? Which I think is why it can get the pass that it does. But it's interesting in that um, in, in both movies, I'm not a great fan of that thing uh, here. I'm, yeah, I, I just, I, and the thing is, it, you know, they always say when you have the problem, you know, you got to come up with a solution. I have no idea how she would find him if she didn't do this. And then you would have no movie. Yeah, no, that's and true. And so, and we've spent time with her. So we know her intentions are pure or whatever. So you just kind of, you have to roll with it and go, Again, context, different era, all of that. That said, she still goes so far as to hire a private detective to follow and photograph Sam. And, I mean, if the genders were reversed, the creep factor would be high. Yeah, and, um, oh man, oh man, it is, uh, it's a <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And not just pictures of him. Pictures of him. The woman he's with, because he starts dating yeah. this woman, Victoria, I, whose only real flaw is her annoying if I'm laugh. Not mistaken. I hope her and Walter get together because they're doing <laughs> yeah. nothing wrong. If I'm not mistaken, isn't it also pictures of him with Jonah, his son, like playing? Yes. And yes, it is. That yes. just goes even. Yes. And she's all heartwarmed, like, oh, he plays with his son, which I know because I hired a private investigator to follow them <laughs> around. It must be true love. I mean, yeah, Sam starts dating Victoria, who who is not a bad person in any way whatsoever. She's actually very nice, and they, but they need to give you something to dislike, so they give her that laugh. But I actually think it's it's an interesting choice on Efren's part to not to make neither Victoria nor Walter terrible people because that would be the easy thing to do is if Sam and Annie were involved with people who were just terrible. Well, okay, that, then then it's easy to sort of ankle those relationships and and get together with each other. And that's that's very real to me. Yeah. And why I, I like I'm happy with Victoria. She clearly really is into Sam. Yeah. And, it, you know, if she has one uh, one fault, it could be that she's trying. <laughs> she's trying to make a connection, right? I and guess. Trying to I mean, I, well, I, and I say it's not, it's not a, a fault. fault. <laughs> but it, it's not a fault. She's into a guy and she's trying to make a connection. But it's, it's all part of that, uh, which will really get a much bigger version of in the next movie. Because the reality is these choices are very hard. Yeah. You know, these are life choices that are well, difficult. Well, you're, you're into who you're into, and sometimes you really can't even say why. Uh, and and Sam just uh, winds up, he's trying to, he wants to be into her, right? Yeah. He's, he's trying to make this happen. He's even fighting against Jonah when Jonah is kind of mean about it and being a little petulant yeah. uh, because he instantly knows that Annie is the soulmate. Right. In that way, I would say that stuff's very real as far as, you know, you're you're not always into the person who you, from the outside, quote unquote, should be with. Yeah. Uh, Jonah actually goes so far as to write back to Annie on his father's behalf. Obviously, Sam doesn't know any of this and sort of sets the meeting at the top of the Empire State Building. But before that even happens, we have to talk about the fact that Annie... Not only, she lies to Walter about going on a business trip when instead she is flying to Seattle to stalk Sam. 
there's like a moment, and they have the, there's a couple interesting things here. There's a moment where Sam sees Annie getting off the plane. He's there dropping off Victoria at the airport. So the, the, the relationship has already reached the dropping off at the airport stage. This is all pre 9 11 when you could actually accompany someone up to the gate which obviously you can no longer do. And there's a moment where Sam sees Annie get off the plane and he's momentarily enchanted by her. It's Meg Ryan, so it's not hard to believe. But Efron does a thing where she sort of slows the frame rate down Mm -hmm. just a tiny, tiny bit to make that moment where Sam sees her really have an impact. Of course, she doesn't see him. He has no idea that this chick is stalking him, that she is arriving there to stalk him. But this is a key little moment because we now know he'd be into her stalking him. <laughs> it opens the door. Uh, and I, I'm only half joking. Like, that's, that's <laughs> I know, why this I know, moment I know. is here, it's, is so that we know, oh, yes. it, he because up to this point, it has all been one-sided that Annie has been the one struck by Cupid's arrow from afar. And yeah, and yes. you do have just the issue of Sam can't know about her until a lot later. But to get this moment where we know, oh, it's love at first sight for him as well, although he's not like the the mechanics haven't gotten him to that point yet, right? And yeah. you know, it's you know, it's a, it's a workaround for just what the situation, the setup makes is a tough issue yeah it's not the last time that they're going to see each other in seattle because she follows him you know and and is watching him near his house and there's a moment where they're kind of on opposite sides of a street where they they see each other and he recognizes her from the airport and says hello and she says hello back and then nearly gets hit by a cab i mean what else could she say but it's it's like like the, the depth of, again, if you reverse the genders, it's creepy and weird. And as it is, it's so creepy and weird, but it's Tom Hanks and it's it's Meg Ryan. So I guess that's a bait a little bit, but like, oh God, you could play this same script and it would be a horror yeah, movie. And, and I do want to say that when you're watching it and the tone of it, it's not played creepy at all. It's just, no. if you, you have to think about it, but it's. You know, it's, as you say, it's Tom Hanks, it's Meg Ryan, it's being directed as a romantic comedy. Yes. Um, And so it's being presented in a much different light. And what's interesting is that Annie's whole journey in this, right, including the stalking and all of this, She, it, it, I contend that this movie really doesn't fit a lot of the, uh, you know, the classic Hollywood narrative stuff where you have X happen on this page and all of that. Right. This, you know, it really, things that were designed to analyze what a lot of movies do after the fact. And now people use it to write movies ahead of time. (laughs) Uh, You know, Annie though, is the one, if you were to try and shoehorn this movie into that kind of narrative structure, Annie's the one who is the protagonist. Well, she's the active character. Yeah. And he, you know, you could argue he's trying to move on. It's a little, a little squishier. Right. But um, she is the one with a goal. Yeah. He really kind of doesn't have a traditional movie goal. Not not in that sense. No, he wants to sort of get, you know, somehow deal with his grief. That's kind of his yeah. goal, but that's not a movie goal in a like in the classic sense, in the Sid field. Yeah. And, and just the distance between them and the the no contact, it makes her version of, you know, a hero's journey or whatever character arc really feel very different as well. This, like the emphasis on death, all of it is just 
you know, the fact that the your two characters are kept apart. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, you know, you watch this movie and it just, it goes by and you're like, yeah, that, you know, you're, you, it's enjoyable and you can have a good time with it. But when you sit down and think about it, I, it is amazes me that this was like one of the biggest movies, like mainstream US movies. I, I honestly don't, it was such a special moment in time, clearly, because you would just look at this movie and go, there's no way that that's going to be like a top 10 movie in a year. Yeah. Like all those studios that passed on it weren't wrong. It defies logic and it defies gravity. Uh, execution is everything. Cause it, it all, it <laughs> all does work in the movie. Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing and interesting to see. I want to mention one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Again, talking about the way movies affect one of the, the movies that's kind of a, uh, has a, has a significant, position in this is a late 1950s movie a fair to remember yep. with Cary Grant and uh, and Deborah Carr or is it Kerr? You know, that's where the, the meaning at the top of the Empire State Building comes in. Like, that's brought in from an affair to remember. But there's a great scene where Tom Hanks is is having dinner with his friends from Chicago, played by Rita Wilson and Victor Garber, and she's talking about an affair to remember, and she's crying, and Tom Hanks and Victor Garber start weepily talking about the Dirty Dozen. Mm-hmm. And apparently that was a scene that Hanks and Garber completely improvised, but it makes me want to do a double feature of an affair to remember in the Dirty Dozen. Like that's a double feature that should be done. <laughs> anyway, unable to convince his father to fly to New York on Valentine's Day because Sam is not crazy, Jonah, with the help of his friend Jessica, does so on his own, and naturally, then Sam follows. Also in New York is you know is Annie and Walter who are having a Valentine's Day dinner after picking out china patterns for their wedding. By the way. The movie is 100% right. Eight is too few. 12 is too many. 10 is the right number. And the picking out the China scene, I think, is also interesting as far as the, you know, painting Walter as a good guy yeah. who would be great for somebody. But also that doesn't matter sometimes right. with who people love because, you know, they're agreeing on everything and they're of a like mind about all of this stuff. Uh, including what you just said, right? With a, and they're they're like in sync. I think they're saying it at the same time. Eight yeah. is too few, and twelve is too many. And it really, is. they're smiling and they're like, "Oh, you know, we are so alike." And isn't this great? And again, in this movie, it's kind of painted as, and that's not so great. Yeah. Um. Be you know, or or it's not enough, or it it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not the thing that is what really connects people at the core. So, no. you know, and 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 not long after that, we have the the, the dinner, where, which leads to, you know, they're, they're having uh, dinner, uh, you know, on Valentine's Day, a perfect view of the Empire State Building from the Rainbow Room at Rockefeller Center. What Walter must have gone through to get that table on <laughs> Valentine's Day. My God. Either he made that reservation four years in advance, or he must have paid through the nose to get it. I mean, I hope Walter finds love. I really do, because he is a good guy. She's looking at the Empire State Building, and, you know, she knows that that's the... And it's like, she ends up breaking up with Walter, like, giving him back his engagement ring, like, hours after he gave it to her. And Walter turns out to be the most understanding human being depicted in the history of cinema. My God, the fact that he understands and doesn't 
Like, I'd be pissed off, lady. I just gave the, the maitre d' 400 bucks to get this table. Well, the- uh, maybe I'm a shallower person than Walter. Oh, my God. It's okay. It's it's only in a few short years that as the president of the United States of America, he fends off an entire alien invasion, Chris. That's so true. I think it's true. Walter does all right. Uh, we are not going to go gentle into our good night. I'll tell you that. He was unlucky in love and singles, too, though. Poor Bill <laughs> Pullman. True. Always always the, the bridesmaid. Never we the bride. Will, we will get to bill pullman will have his moment in this series in in a couple of episodes uh you know it will happen for him third Third time's the charm for bill pullman um and you know i mean i just he's so he's so understanding it's it's insane and that of course leads to the dramatic run through the streets of new york this time we have meg ryan doing the running the streets of new york uh as sam is arriving at the empire state building to find jonah and again i love everything with sam and jonah in this movie they're their father-son relationship is just it hits every beat, hit every mark, and it totally, uh, it's totally great. So when he like finds him, it's like he, he grabs him and hugs him. And it's like he's he's angry, but at the same time, he's just the relief that nothing has happened to his son. Mm-hmm. It, it, you could feel it, and it's a hundred percent. And and then of course you have this near miss in the elevator with Sam and Annie, uh, and then finally they meet and and this movie ends as most romantic comedies begin and and you know presumably they're made for one another well, i have to wonder sam obviously recognizes annie as the woman from the airport in that he saw across the street in seattle how is she going to explain that because She's either going to have to make up another cock and bull story or she's going to have to come clean and tell Sam he she hired a private detective to stalk and photograph him. How much truth will this relationship have? I don't know. I think he's he's there for all of it. Um, and th- this end, the near miss at the end. It's 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 directed impeccable. Directed and edited impeccable. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it the the miss happens and then it turns out that Jonah had left the bag, right? And that's and yeah. they're coming back for it. That's the only reason they actually wind up meeting. Was, yes. This ties back in all the way at the beginning when this movie opens. There is a question of coincidence versus fate. Sure. And I think that, you know, uh, I believe Annie's talking about it at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. With her, with her mother, there's a scene with her mother where she's trying on her mother's wedding dress, which is going to be hers and it tears. Yeah. And, and she's like, oh, it's a sign. And, and there's a talk about destiny and yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely a thread throughout this for sure. And I think, you know, that this is a movie again, to go to the kind of the fairy tale of it. This is a movie that comes down on the side of fate. Right. Definitely. Sam and Annie were fated to be together. This is, I, you know, I think the appeal of this movie is, again, it's a capital true T-Love movie, Chris. It is. It (laughs) is definitely. It is definitely that. When you break it down, it's like, oh, my God, there's some really weird stuff here. But at the same time. Uh, the writing and direction of Nora Ephron and the performances in particular from from Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan keep it afloat. The logic of this. Oh, my God. It's it's crazy. And and don't this is this is a movie should have a, a warning at the beginning. Don't try this at home because, yeah. you know, like it's don't 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 do these things. Don't hire private detectives to stalk your like don't don't do it man it's uh yeah, it's, i mean to go back to my john wick uh like <laughs> i i know that you can't wear an impeccably tailored three-piece suit that is also an anti-ballistics outfit right <laughs> i also yes. don't give a shit yeah <laughs> like i no, just absolutely you know, and 
I, I mean, this is obviously a much different version of that, but I would chalk it up to that. Yeah, they both open with funerals. Yeah. And uh, you're just kind of like, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't happen this way in real life. Don't care. It's But it's a movie. Yeah. Yes. Our second film today also features a couple who are initially separated by distance. One of the most successful films produced in the UK and an unexpected hit. This is Four Weddings and a Funeral. There are one or two things you need for a successful wedding. Tact. So, John, how's that, how's that gorgeous girlfriend of yours? Uh, she's no longer my girlfriend. Ah, dear. Still, I wouldn't get too gloomy about it. Rumor has it she never stopped bonking old Toby Delisle, just in case you didn't work out. She is now my wife. A discreet best man. When Bernard told me he was getting engaged to Lydia, I, I congratulated him because all his other girlfriends had been such complete dogs. <laughs> Although, may I say how, how, how delighted we are to have so many of them here this evening. <laughs> Delightful guests. How do you do? My name is Charles. Don't be ridiculous. Charles died 20 years ago. It must be a different Charles, I think. Are you telling me I don't know my own brother? No, no. An experienced vicar. Who lives and reigns with you and the holy goat. Ghost. And a loving bride. I do. <laughs> a film with a message. Don't get married. Unless you fall recklessly in love. I feel it in my finger. <laughs> I feel it in my toe. What do you think? Divine. Love is all around me. And so the feeling grows. Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell invite you to Four Weddings and a Funeral from the creators of Enchanted April and Black Adder. May almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Let me say up front that Four Weddings and a Funeral is another film that I'm seeing for the very first time, but there's a reason for this. We're going to go back in the Wayback Machine to a long time ago when I was in high school. And I was with some friends and we decided to go see a movie. And there were two movies that we were considering and that we knew nothing about either one. One of those movies was Four Weddings and a Funeral. The other was the one that we saw, which turned out to not only be one of the worst movies I've ever, is the worst movie I've ever seen in a movie. I've seen things on home video that are worse, so, not just bad, but tedious and long and dull. I've never wanted to escape a movie theater more. So that movie that we saw that day was called The House of the Spirits. And it is based on a very well-regarded novel, but man, the movie is rough. And I think the reason we chose it was because The House of the Spirits had an amazing cast. Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, Winona Ryder. And we had never heard of anybody in Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, but but I think that's why we picked You it. hadn't seen Groundhog Day? You hadn't well, seen I know, Groundhog Day Well, I knew who Andy McDowell was, but I didn't know who Grant was. Come I, on, baby. But, but, but you okay. know, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, Meryl Streep, what don't we have? There was a murderer's row in, in House of the Spirits. Uh, we didn't know, huh? of course, that they were all playing Latin Americans, by the way. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Annie's cyber stalking looks a whole lot better. <laughs> for, for a very long time, 
Four Weddings and a Funeral was this sort of cinematic road not taken. I love to picture you the next day still mad about the movie you saw, and then you're like opening your mail and varieties in it. And on the front page is like, Four Weddings does Boxo Bop Office. Or no, it was office. like over the next <laughs> couple like, weeks, we started to hear how great this wrong. movie was. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And then so I never, I never, for some reason, I never got around to seeing it until this week for the show. Never bet against Black Adder, my man, and Mr. Bean, and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, and, and, yeah. And, what, and here's what's weird. Now, Four Weddings and a Funeral was written by Richard Curtis, directed by Mike Newell, who would later go on to do Donnie Brasco and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And what's so strange is I've seen a lot of Richard Curtis's other work. Like in the 1980s, he did Blackadder. He he wrote Blackadder. He wrote Mr. Bean. Uh, he later wrote films such as Notting Hill, which we'll cover later in this series, and Love Actually, which he also directed, as well as his fantastic episode of Doctor Who, Vincent and the Doctor, is one of the all-time yes. great Doctor Who episodes. It is but so great. Like there's this. Like I was very familiar I'm with Richard Curtis, but there's the like that four weddings in a funeral shaped hole in my Richard Curtis knowledge. And what's amazing is that this movie is absolutely the ur-text of Richard Curtis. There are concepts, characters, themes, pieces of music that reappear or are further developed in subsequent Richard Curtis films, but this is where it all starts. I mean, it's clear right off the bat that Richard Curtis is fascinated by weddings and funerals because they both play significant roles in future films, most notably Love Actually. And I almost jumped out of my seat at the use of Love is All Around, originally recorded by the Trogs and here covered by Wet, 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 which was refashioned in Love Actually into the Billy Mac Christmas single Christmas is All Around. I'm like, oh, my God, it all like came together like Four Weddings and a Funeral is to Richard Curtis what Mean Streets is to Martin Scorsese. This is Richard Curtis's Mean Streets. Wow. I thought you were going to say it's his Battle Beyond the Stars score, but I'll, I'll take it to Mean <laughs> that Streets. That also works, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the film stars Hugh Grant, Andy McDowell, James Fleet, Simon Callow, John Hanna, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Rowan Atkinson. And unlike... Some of the films we discussed in the series where there seemed to be a fair amount of balance between the main characters, Four Weddings and a Funeral feels very much like Charles's story, the character played by Hugh Grant. Absolutely. We follow this character as he attends over the course of the film, Four Weddings and One Funeral, as the title would suggest. And during these events, often separated by several months, he meets Carrie, played by Andy McDowell, an American woman with whom his relationship grows ever more complicated. The film also revolves around Charles's circle of friends, which is is an interesting choice the film makes to, to give him this eclectic group that includes his friend Fiona, her brother Tom, his roommate Scarlett, Gareth and his partner Matthew, and Charles's brother David. We had another group movie with singles in singles where you had multi, you know, a, a, a vast array of people in their own romantic relationships. And I guess in, even when Harry met Sally, you had the two couples in this one, though, it does, uh, as you say, this is the one that feels much more traditionally a single person story. Yes. Sleepless in Seattle pairs with it nicely in that Annie is the way more active one, but it really is equal weight. You're learning about Sam's inner life. In this movie, I want to say in the first hour plus, like, we actually don't know anything about Carrie other than that she's an American. Right. Like, of her inner life. Right. We don't know her hopes and dreams. We don't know what her life has been like. 
it is very much seeing her just through the eyes of Charles. Right. And it's one of the things as we go through the this movie and the story where this is where I think this also comes down on the side of just a fated love, right? Sure. In that we don't get to see, really, in my opinion, why he falls in love with her. Newsflash, he chooses badly. <laughs> he chooses badly. I feel very strongly yeah. about this and we're going to get into it. Because yeah. there's, and this, I, I texted Rob last night uh, and said, this is going to be a weird, I'm going to have weird personal opinions about this movie that I will not be able to justify, but I'm just going to go with but it. But I, I will just say that the cap on that is that what we are shown is that he does fall in love. Yes. And uh, again, I'm not saying it doesn't work because it's yes. a different type of love. It's, this is the thunderbolt. Yes. You just see someone and they're they're the one, right? And that is uh, look. Even in life, sometimes that happens. Um, and then you get to know the person. Uh, this, I think, very much, you know, in a in a similar way to Sleepless in Seattle. This is a thunderbolt love movie where it's just yeah. it happens right off the bat, and then the whole story is about trying to get you there. You know, as the character. The difference is here it happens in the first act as opposed to in the final in the final scene because he meets her. But you're right. He doesn't learn about more until until later. But, but Annie, I would argue Annie has that thunderbolt way be- well before she meets Sam. Yes, that's true. And, and that's so, true. And, and no, you're so, right. She has that thunderbolt when she listens to the radio. That's 100% yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's different because in Sleepless in Seattle, she is like hearing his thoughts and in internal life. Right. And in here, it is literally love at first sight. So that's... That's very different. Right. In, in, in Sleep in Seattle, it's the parasocial relationship. Here, it's a social relationship that is that that is shaped by these social engagements. And 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 it's interesting because I feel like and, and we get very little that's outside of the of the five social engagements of the film. Uh and I actually yeah. think it, it's more of a like sort of classic Shakespearean five act structure rather than the traditional movie three act structure. I I, I think that's interesting that way. Uh, the other other thing is interesting is Charles doesn't have an obvious wound at the beginning of the movie, a, a psychological or emotional wound, not a literal wound. We only start to get his sense of loneliness as as the movie goes on. We don't really start to get a, a lot of it at that first wedding. It's not until the second wedding where we kind of learn a little bit about his backstory as well. It's interesting when you talk about the Shakespearean because uh, this is a comedy. Yes. And there are many things that they do to subvert it. I mean, if you think about, uh, obviously, the five-act tragedy is different, but the Shakespearean farces often end in a A wedding. wedding. Yes. And this one technically ends in a wedding. It does. Technically. Technically. (laughs) But subverts a lot of that again we'll get there when we get there but just since you'd mentioned it now i wanted to oh absolutely absolutely not only does this feel like a formative work for richard curtis but it feels like a foundational text for british comedy in the 90s and aughts specifically the comedy of embarrassment this movie is all built around the comedy (laughs) of embarrassment and it's so very british and and it's something that hugh grant is fantastic at which is why he emerges as kind of a fully formed comic movie star in this movie. So at the first wedding, Charles and Carrie meet for the first time and they end up hooking up. But as she lives in the United States, there doesn't seem to be much of a future. I will mention one thing. Uh, There's a moment where Andy McDowell says, I'm going back to America. And I have to point out, Americans never say that. 
They would say the U.S., they'd say the States, but like British people refer to the United States as America more than Americans actually do. Yeah, and and frankly, most of us, because we're used to talking about uh, where we live to other Americans, I found this when I traveled. Uh, they, they'd say like I'm going back to New York or California. Yeah, or California. Like, we 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 don't we don't remember that we need to reference the larger structure. <laughs> yes, yes, because we are you know in, in our own world. I know. Uh, that said, I do enjoy the way British say, people say the word condom. And you know, first wedding is just kind of setting the table. Although we do see the couple from the second wedding meet. At the reception for the first wedding, which I, I, which I, yeah. I called it, and 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 my wife was, yeah. uh, you know, thoroughly impressed. Might, uh, might you say that that first wedding is establishing the pre-existing conflict, Chris? Exactly. Like exactly. A, oh God, where who does that? I can't remember. Um, starts <laughs> exactly. with an S. Starts with an S uh, and yeah. ends with a spear. Hyperion. Yeah. The second wedding is set three months later, and and Bernard and Lydia, a couple who met at the first wedding. Now, here's my only issue here is how, that's a large-scale wedding. They're not eloping. They're not going to Blackpool to, to get married. I don't know if that's what people do. I don't know if that's where people go to get married. Seems like it would be. But, like, how can you – how can you have a large-scale wedding in three months? You can't even get the venue in that time frame. Like, come it was on. the 90s. Early yeah, 90s, man. I guess I the just, 90s were different. Yeah, uh, the, the second 90s. wedding, you get a fantastic scene with Rowan Atkinson as a new and very nervous priest. And I mentioned the comedy of embarrassment earlier. This scene is a perfect example of her, where he keeps oh, stumbling sure. over the words, the, the, the father, the son, and the holy spigot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Getting the names wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know. And it's interesting because here and then uh, I forget if it's this wedding or the earlier one where you have the folk duo doing. Oh, my uh, God. The folk duo are amazing. And and the the, yeah. the, the cut to the friends watching them, like yes. the group of friends. And Simon Callow's face is just Gareth, perfect. Yeah. This So this is the earlier version of uh, this is the proto UK embarrassment because eventually you drop those reaction shots. Yes. Yes, that's but not, that is you're, true. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. I also want to mention that that this movie assembles a far more diverse group than you would usually find in a movie from the 90s. Like the most devoted couple in this movie is clearly Gareth and Matthew, who at this point are, in time were unable to marry because gay marriage was not yet legal. Uh, additionally, you have uh, David is the, is is Charles's brother is deaf, and 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 the use of sign language in this movie for comic effect is tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Although I, from my knowledge at least, and I am not I am not fluent, but my knowledge of ASL American Sign Language, and I'm not sure which sign language they were using in this movie, is that. You know, unlike an alphabet where you could mistranslate nice and mice if you were saying it because they sound very similar, the signing would not work that way (laughs) because those are completely different signs. You you might completely mess up a a word, but I don't think it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same as like nice and mice being right. Right, I I could be wrong on that. But again, movie. It's fine. It's a movie. <laughs> to Charles's yeah. surprise, he sees Carrie again at the second wedding. And the good news is she's moved to the UK. The bad news is she's now engaged to a guy named Hamish. And he also encounters at the second wedding uh, his ex-girlfriend, Henrietta, who 
claims that Charles is a serial monogamist. They don't present Henrietta in a, in a very good light, although I, I'm not entirely sure that she does anything wrong. Her crime is that she likes him and she's trying. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's but, like Victoria. That's a crime when you're not into it, which, you know, again, that's real. If you're not into someone and they're they're trying, you're like, ugh, that's annoying. And again, I've I've been both of the, <laughs> I've been on both sure. sides of that. I've been the annoying guy. I've been the annoyed guy. But she is also hen. I just want to hen is not a duck face. Like no, oh no, and Chancellor is very attractive. Like come on, yeah, no, that, that's no. yes, absolutely not. No, the none of none of none of Charles's prospective partners are unattractive. It's not that's not it. But despite the fact that she's now engaged. Carrie and Charles sleep together again. I just want to add my own observation that there is no monopoly on this planet like that of the people who make chairs for wedding venues. (laughs) I was at a wedding very recently in 2023, and they had the same chairs that were in this movie nearly 30 years ago. And in the UK, and they're the same chairs I've seen at every wedding I've ever been to, including my own. There is no variation in wedding chairs. This is, by the way, a nice lead-in for our new investigative true crime podcast, (laughs) Wedding Chairs, The Untold Story. So you'll be getting that soon. Another familiar Richard Curtis trope that shows up here is the idea of People in love with unavailable people. Yeah. That will come back both in Notting Hill and Love Actually, and it's very present here. It, and, and normally, this is the what I was talking about with a, a trope that is often more presented gender swap. Yes. The woman who's in love with the unavailable man, which Sleepless in Seattle gets to subvert because he was an unavailable man. The good ones are always taken. But then death intervenes, so now that good one's available again, right? Right. Right. Here, you know, Charles is in love with the totally unavailable Carrie. And it is, to me, I think a lot of this stems from the idea of the star-crossed lovers, right? Romeo and Juliet. Sure. Romeo and Juliet love each other, but their families are, you know, softcore warring with each other. So it's hard for them to get together. And I think that, you know, that game of telephone can play all the way down the line to something like, let's say, the Bridges of Madison County. Right. Where... Oh, you were the Italian war bride who married someone because you had to, but now you're finding true love with this magazine photographer for the first time, right? Right. And that's a different kind of star-crossed. There's a a grand tradition of the unavailable person because you were in an older place and time that prevented capital true T (laughs) love from happening in your romance. But here it's the modern era. Yes. And- It's way different, but it's now you're having that unavailable person. And I think to me, it just plays a little bit differently in that it's not like these people had no choices. This is just kind of bad choices they've made. Again, it's Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell. I'm not saying it doesn't work in the context of this movie, but to me, it's interesting to see how uh, a trope changes over time because of time and place. And I think that it starts to function radically differently than the original version of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting. The third wedding turns out to be Carrie's wedding. And while shopping for a gift for that wedding, he actually runs into her. And this is one of the few, this is one of the few parts of the movie that don't take place at the at the at the social occasions, the social events uh, of the title. Yeah. And what seems like an absolutely torturous move on her part, she insists he accompanying her dress shopping. 
And I'm like, lady, you have slept with this guy twice. Do not make him watch as you try on dresses for your wedding to another man. It's, uh, and you know, it's, it's a bit torturous for him. And we, they ring some comedy out of that I, in, in the very British. Yeah. Way. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. And then yeah. they have a conversation about the number of sex partners they've had. That's a weird, I don't even, uh, that's a weird scene. It just feels like in this sequence, she's torturing him for the sake of it. I, I will say though, that the, the scene where they are talking about the sex partners, right? Mm-hmm. is kind of the first scene while while there is the comedic aspect and the kind of torturous embarrassment of it all right and then uh but it is the first time that we're actually getting more than just she's the mysterious beautiful stranger true that is true you start to get her interior life in in a in a yeah. in a way yes because as she goes through like number 7 and number 12 and uh, and the more most important number 32 i believe yeah he was 32 charles was 32 but you kind of get a little bit more like oh this is a real person yeah right they have had their ups and downs and it's it's important in that way because this is the first time that we're really making her uh, like a, a three-dimensional character right and starting to see you know, hey, this is a a person that maybe he would be able to have a life with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, honestly. (laughs) You're unconvinced. uh, Well, here's the the thing, Rob. This is the first film we've watched for this series where I think I was actively rooting against the main couple. And I'll tell you why. Because at the third wedding, Charles's friend Fiona, played by the incomparable... Kristen Scott Thomas confesses to him that the reason she never married is that she has been in love with him for years. How about you, Fifi? You identified a future partner for life yet? No need, Ray. Deed is done. I've been in love with the same book for ages. Have you? Who's that? You, Charlie. It's always been you. Since first we met. Oh, so many years ago. I knew the first moment across a crowded room. Lawn, in fact. Doesn't matter. Nothing either of us can do on this one, such is life. Friends isn't bad, you know. Friends is quite something. Like, Charles, what are you doing pining over an unavailable Andy McDowell when Kristen Scott Thomas is right 
there. Why on earth would you choose this terrible woman who slept with you after she was engaged and then tortures you by taking you wedding dress shopping for her marriage to another dude when you can be with Kristen Scott Thomas who really loves you and says the word condom in a really sexy way? You're an idiot. And I think this is a good illustration of when you take the star-crossed lover unavailable thing and you 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 swap out a lot of blocks that it Ugh. it could perhaps combined with the casting of Kristen Scott Thomas produce this sort of reaction from someone but I, I I'll yes yes I, I I think you have to give Andy McDowell the hair uh her hair is incredible in this movie oh her hair is terrific no she's got great hair and and I I her do believe incredible in, in this movie you know to, to quote Sam Malone from Cheers good looks may open doors but good hair blows those doors off their hinges yeah but that that doesn't that that's I mean that's a point in her favor, but that's the point. That's the only point. <sighs> Boy, yeah, it's it's anyway. It's at at the the festive occasion of Carrie's wedding to Hamish uh, that 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 is br- is brought to a halt when Gareth suffers a fatal heart attack, and and honestly, the most heartbreaking moment in this movie oh, is yeah. when we see Charles have to go tell Matthew his partner has died. You don't hear any of what's said it you just see it and it is it is absolutely like crushing in in uh, like it's amazing and 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 it's you have the 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 funeral with gareth's funeral where john hannah gives this incredible performance and this incredibly moving reading of wh Auden's poem funeral blues and they are clearly the most devoted couple in this film and your heart just breaks yeah that is in in other movies or other executions that could be something a scene that feels like it stops this movie no so not the case in four weddings and a funeral you know a john hannah's performance is is oh god it's amazing yeah it's it's something to see and i think this is another this movie the death in this movie and the death in sleepless in seattle it's not just uh emo doom romance stuff although it is also that but it really it is using death to highlight the depth of love yeah and why it matters and it it really is using death uh, in relief to the love uh because it's hard to you can't fully get you know, and this is just like a real life thing. You can't get the high of the love without knowing the despair of of losing someone, and you know, death being being uh, death being the ultimate loss. Um, and I think both this is one thing that both and very very differently and at different points in the story and to different effect on the main characters, but uh, they both do this very well. Yeah, and in a way that you don't often get. <laughs> in a romantic comedy, uh, which makes them unique in that way. I, I want to point out that 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 Gareth's death, which essentially comes at the end of the third event, which the, so the 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 third act of five, if you're using sort of the Shakespearean model, and that's where you would get that climactic turning point moment that that throws everything into change, and and then you 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 have the the two acts act afterwards, kind of dealing with the effects of yeah. Is that the the spiral? Is that act four? Or? Yeah, I think the act four, the spiral, and then you have the the resolution. Uh, the the final wedding, we jump ahead ten months, and the final wedding is actually Charles. And after a little bit of coy misdirection, we learn that Charles is marrying his old old girlfriend, Henrietta. 
But when Carrie arrives, Carrie shows up and tells Charles that her and her husband Hamish have split up. Not a surprise because Hamish is painted as kind of a dick. Charles starts to have doubts. And when the minister asks if there's anyone there who's present who can show a reason why they shouldn't be married, Charles's brother, using sign language, says to the groom, says the groom is having doubts, which Charles admits to. And Henrietta responds by hauling off and hitting him, which at this point is honestly deserved. I mean, listen, you shouldn't be forced to marry anyone you don't love, but figure that out before you get to the altar. Don't be cruel. Don't embarrass someone like that. I, I She deserves to get punched. I hope she broke his jaw a little bit. I hope he ends up like, you know, Charles has to go to like Sicily for, for a year, like Michael Corleone and, 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 you know, have his jaw heal. I mean, like it, it, it's, it, don't do that. Don't do, don't reach that point. He should never have asked her. If he didn't love her, he should never have asked her. It's, 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 uh, but you know, I guess it's, people are imperfect and they make mistakes. That's why we have movies, I suppose. But it, it just, Kristen Scott Thomas is right there. <laughs> well, on the leaving head at the altar, which is a terrible thing to do. Terrible. This is where you get uh, both the characters written and Hugh Grant's performance uh, throughout this movie, where he is presented as a guy who doesn't really have it together. And including here, yes. right? He's he's made a mess of things. And he does feel terribly after, right? Yes. Oh, he definitely does. And as a matter of fact, when he's back uh talking with all of his friends about it in his place and he's got you know, he's got the big bruise, there's a knock at the door, right? And they all are going to try and save him from Hen's wrath a second time. And yeah. he even says no, essentially, uh, no, I, you know. I did the crime. I got to do the time. I think that's what they say yeah. in England, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's what they said on Beretta. Yeah. So there's great pains taken that, you know, he, he his love was star crossed. He feels he, bad. he knows how big of a shit heel move this was, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily make it better, but you can feel okay about maybe this guy is, uh, not doing so great, doesn't have his life together. Maybe he's starting to figure it out, you know? And again, on paper, these things are one thing, right? And you might go, well, that sounds like a whole lot of bad boyfriends I've had or whatever, right? But again, this is a movie and the execution, uh, the direction, uh, the fact that it's a comedy where a lot of this stuff is being made light of uh, at, at various points and Hugh Grant's performance, it all works for me in the context of the movie. I know Chris. No, it yeah. does. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to seem like I don't like this movie. I yeah. actually really enjoyed this movie. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, you know, I, you know, we all, we all carry our own, our own <laughs> things into every movie that we see. We, we all have our own Kristen Scott Thomas, Chris. Yes. Yeah, somewhere in movie. Uh, it, yes. It's, it's got some genuinely wonderful comic sensibility. It's got some great performances and wonderful heartbreaking moments. Uh, anyway, at the end of the film, we get a, a photo montage of what happens to some of the characters. Henrietta marries a military officer. David marries a girl he met at the second wedding. Matthew has found happiness with a new partner, which I thought was that was wonderful. Like that, that was the one moment that that did my heart good because it was like, oh, you know, he he gets to continue his life. Uh, Fiona is shown next to the future King Charles, yeah. which uh, you know, uh, uh, God, Fiona, this movie does Fiona so dirty. She does nothing. <laughs> ah, it's so upsetting to me. And Charles and Carrie, while they don't marry, they do have a child, and and this movie's a huge success. 
Yeah, came out in the spring of 1994. It made around 245 million worldwide on a four and a half million dollar budget. It was nominated for Best Picture uh, and Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, and it won four BAFTAs. And I want to mention that it, it, oftentimes, like you know, you have that question out of a romantic comedy: What happened to the characters? In this, we know because in 2019, the cast reunited for a short film for Comic Relief's Red Nose Day, in which Charles and Carrie's daughter marries Fiona's daughter. The ceremony performed by an older but no less nervous Rowan Atkinson. And, and recently, weren't wasn't there a, uh, a a miniseries version of the film as well? Yeah, I right? think there was a miniseries remake of it for Hulu as well. I have not seen that, but uh, I, check it out. I, oh, dude, I'm smelling bonus episode I, again. I, I like this movie a lot. I just you know I care. I carry my own baggage into it. Um, you know, it's been a long, nearly thirty years ago. I was supposed to see this movie and then didn't, and you know. House of the Spirits intervene. <laughs> anyway, I, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. Please come back next week when we will be joined by a very special guest, Jennifer Howell of the Every Rom-Com Podcast. And she'll be here to discuss two films, both set in Paris, both of which were released in May of 1995, and each starred one of the leads of When Harry Met Sally. So next week, come back. We'll explore French Kiss with Meg Ryan and Forget Paris with Billy Crystal. Again, we thank you so much for listening. We are your host, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And if you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell Kristen Scott Thomas if you happen to know her. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. Kristen Scott Thomas is right there. <laughs> She's right there and she loves you. Ugh.